0: Well, welcome back to Thursday nights, and uh, if you are with us last week, you know that we started into this wonderful letter of Philippians, so if you, if you want, just go ahead and turn there, Philippians chapter 1, and if you were here, you remember that we spent the entire time basically setting up the background of this letter. We looked at what was going on in Philippi, what had gone on, what motivated Paul to write this this treasure of a letter. And we learned that this Philippian church was planted by Paul's team some years back, about ten years. But from day one, they had been zealous in gospel ministry. You guys remember that? They helped Paul evangelize in Philippi. When he was there, right after he planted the church, they were laboring alongside of him, sharing the gospel. And then after he left, they kept sending him money. They sent money time and time again, so he could keep on planting churches. This zeal had continued until the present day, the time of writing this letter. They had heard that Paul was in prison in Rome, They loved Paul dearly. Paul loved them dearly. And so their hearts broke for him. They wanted to help him. Um, So even in the midst of their poverty, they raised money. They sent it to Paul, and they sent it to him through one of their own leaders. His name was Epaphroditus. We read about him in the letter to the Philippians. But apparently, Epaphroditus didn't just bring money. He also brought news. News about what was going on in Philippi. He told Paul about the persecution that had ratcheted up in the city. That the church was afraid. And to complicate matters even more, there were some insidious strands of teaching creeping into this church. Kind of both ends of the spectrum. There was legalism on the one side, and there was worldliness on the other side. But worst of all, there was a dispute happening right in the middle of the church. It was brewing, and there was a conflict between two important women that are actually named in this letter, Yodia and Syntyche. And it seems to have been a big deal. So much so that it probably created some, some sides in the church. You know, like this, you know, this, these people are on this side of the debate, these people are on this side of the debate, and it had turned them inward. And what all these threats had in common was this they distracted the church away from her mission. That's the mission to evangelize the lost and edify the saints. And any time we face persecution, any time we face trials in life, we're tempted to back off sharing the gospel. Then false teaching and false living also tempt us away from growing to maturity in Christ, which is part of the mission. And internal conflict... In the church, and even internal conflict right here in Boundless can create division and distraction. And Epaphroditus, back in the first century, he knew this too, and he probably requested that Paul would send someone to help them navigate these threats. But that's a bit of a problem because Paul is where? He's in prison. And so Paul couldn't go himself. Timothy was with him, so. In theory, he could, send, he could send Timothy, but it seems like Paul really needed him there. Paul needed Timothy, at least in the short term. He said he hoped to send Timothy as soon as he could, and to even come there himself, assuming that he is released from prison. So, in light of both the generous gift that, they had, been give, that had been given to Paul, in light of that, and in light of the situation that needed shepherding, Paul decided to write them a letter. And he decided to send it back with Epaphroditus, one of their leaders. So you can think of this letter as both a heartfelt like thank you note and an intentional shepherding of this church to stay focused on the mission. So the thank you side, you'll see this in the opening. We'll see it next week, and then at the end in chapter 4, it kind of bookends the letter, this thank you, this theme of thank you. But then through the bulk of the letter and really the thrust of it is this Paul's intentional shepherding of this church to stay focused, stay dialed in on what the mission is. His goal is to help them deal with their dispute and to put steel in their backbone so that they would continue building a healthy church right there in Philippi, continue sharing the gospel, continue seeing the saints grow. And what we're going to see tonight is that Paul doesn't waste any time. This intentional shepherding begins even in the very opening of this letter. In its first two verses. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're like me, and you're doing your Bible reading plans, and you're reading through the letters, it's very tempting to read the opening verses of these letters in the Bible without much thought. You know what I'm talking about? Kind of like we might read the return address on the outside of an envelope. You guys ever get mail? Or just texts? Or DMs? Yeah, Those wouldn't work for this analogy, okay? Think snail mail. You, know, you get, the, you get the, the envelope, and you say, mm, yeah, it's the address, it's my grandmother. Mm, it's to me, good. All right, let's see what's inside. Let's get inside of that thing. Read it quick. But what I hope to show you tonight is that these verses are not throwaway verses. They're not verses just to glance at and move on, even though there's not a lot there. What I want to show you is that that Paul is very strategic in these verses. He's strategic as he identifies and describes himself. And he's strategic in how he identifies and describes the Philippian church. He makes some intentional choices in the intro. We could say it that way. And he sets us up in like a shepherding direction, even with the first words of this letter. Now, you're saying seems like you're reading into this a little bit. You know, I've read the introductions. It doesn't seem like there's a lot there. Well, it won't seem that much of a stretch when we realize that we actually do this all the time ourselves. Okay? Think about when we make introductions. We choose to highlight certain things and not highlight other things when we either introduce ourselves or we introduce other people. Right? And why is that? Well, it's because typically we have a goal. There's a context to the introduction. Now, imagine that I met you for the first time tonight, and you told me that you're a brand-new medical, medical school student. You know, just arrived, you're in the, in the throes of it. And we're talking, and then all of a sudden, one of our own med school students happens to be walking by. We'll say, it's Mike, right? So Mike's walking by. I see Mike. I flag him down. I motion him to come over, and, and now pretend I said, okay, hey, you, um, let me introduce you to Mike. He is a great surfer And he loves to surf in California. Maybe not the great surfer part. He loves to surf. Now, if that was you, you would be like, okay, like, uh, it's kind of weird, but why did he choose to introduce me to surfer Mike? So even though that's partly true about Mike, it is irrelevant to the introduction, right? Right? Instead, I would say, hey, let me introduce you to Mike. He is one of our med school students. Now, that's not the only thing that identifies Mike. There's lots of things that identify Mike. But of all the things that I could say about Mike, I I would choose the med school fact because it accomplishes my purpose. And that's to make you, in this case, feel at home here and to connect with someone who can understand your plight, you know, in med school. So... I know that's kind of silly, but Paul does something very similar here in this opening. He chooses his words carefully and intentionally because of the context. Because this church is facing a dispute where pride is rearing its, its ugly head, he describes himself and Timothy simply as humble slaves in verse 1. Not from a whole other bag of things he could have described himself as, like an apostle, which is normal for Paul to introduce himself as an apostle. He doesn't even say that. Not even as a prisoner, even though in some letters he says that. But he says, a slave of Christ and nothing else. And then he'll go on to describe this church in Philippi as saints in Christ, as those set apart for a purpose, for a mission. He wants them to remember who they are and why God has left them there in Philippi. It's not to get scared about persecution. And it's definitely not to argue amongst themselves. It's to be his holy ones, his saints. So even from the opening verses, Paul's already shepherding this church. And as we're going to see, he's setting up some themes for us that he will develop in the letter as we study it. And for us here in Boundless, it's absolutely crucial... That we do not forget our identity either. And that's because the mission's at stake. It's at stake at Lynchburg, it's at stake at LU, it's at stake at whatever college or vocation that you're involved in. If we forget who we are, if we forget what God has created us to be in Christ, then we get off track very quickly. But when our God-given identity sinks down deep into our bones, we will be galvanized for the mission. We'll be bold in evangelism, and we will lay our lives down to build up the church, God's people. So tonight, what I want to do, calling this message Slaves and Saints, and looking at Paul's opening. And in this opening, we're going to draw out those two reminders about our identity. About who we are in Christ. Paul's introducing himself and, and he's addressing the Philippians here, you know, kind of some, some introductory remarks, but I think he's doing it intentionally. And I think they're functioning kind of subtly as reminders of identity. Reminders of identity. And this first reminder comes in how Paul chooses to describe both himself and Timothy in verse 1. And as we'll see, I'm going to argue that Paul is holding himself out for the Philippians here as a model he's holding himself out as an example of the kind of attitude that we should have about ourselves. And the first thing Paul says, the first way we should think of ourselves is as the ESV translates it, a a servant. A humble servant. Or better, a slave. A slave. A slave at at the disposal of a perfect master. The Lord Jesus Christ. So we could say it like this, we are slaves of Christ. Slaves of Christ. Look with me in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants, or literally slaves, of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this opening of the letter, Paul identifies both he and Timothy as the senders. Now, it's going to become clear that they're not co-writing this letter. Paul is writing the letter. And you see that very clearly in the first person singular throughout this letter. It's Paul. He's the author. But Timothy's with him. He may even be helping him write, like physically write it down. We don't know. But he's with him in the prison. And it's important that that Paul's identifying here as a sort of co-sender. But it's significant that the only thing that Paul chooses to highlight about himself and his co-worker, the way he chooses to introduce them is that they are simply humble slaves of Christ. Now, like I said, most of our translations say servants, but the ESV has a footnote, and it indicates it could be translated as slave. And I think slave is the better translation, because that's what this term refers to. Someone owned by another person. Someone whose only concern is to fulfill the will of his master. Or that should be his only concern. Identifying as a humble slave of Jesus is something that the Philippians needed, and we need today. When we forget that we're slaves, we start thinking we're important, and the mission of Christ gets off very quickly in the church. But let's just take a minute and unpack this identity a little bit more in depth. Let's just make a few observations about this concept of being a slave. All right? And the first thing that I want to show you is that the, the meaning of this metaphor would have been very apparent to anyone living in the Roman Empire. Been very obvious. Slavery was a well-known institution. It's estimated, listen to this, it's estimated that up to 85% of the population in the empire had either once been a slave or currently were slaves. 85% had either been a slave, and now they're free, or they're currently a slave. That's a staggering statistic, and kind of gives us some insight on just how familiar people would be with this institution. And that means, then, that the 85% mark means that it's very likely that this church had slaves in it, and masters as well. And that's not uncommon in Paul's churches. You see him even address them in certain letters that he writes. So they knew what slavery involved. To be a slave meant being owned by another person. And it meant living to please the master. So it was an incredibly humble position with very little to no rights. But there's more to this term than meets the eye. This identification as a slave of the Lord was also a very important description in the Old Testament. So they knew it culturally. They had experience with it. They knew it was you know, kind of low end of the totem pole. But there's also an Old Testament background. And it's, it's rich with meaning. Some of the most prominent people in the Bible are described as the slaves of Yahweh. It begins with the the patriarchs. Abraham and Isaac are both described with this same Greek term in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, as slaves, doulos, of Yahweh. And so was the nation itself, the nation of Israel. They were God's slaves. Her prophets, and especially her kings as well, like David, they took the title too. And that's because God had claimed Israel and her leaders as his own. He had purchased Israel from the house of slavery in Egypt, slavery to Pharaoh, slavery to her enemies, and he had made her into his people, into his slaves, to be obedient to his will. But Israel and her kings had failed in that mission as slaves. They weren't obedient to his will. So the Lord promised to raise up a new slave. With a capital S. A slave who would be fully obedient. He would die for the sins of the people. And he would restore the people back to God. And Isaiah even says that this capital S slave will make little slaves. Faithful slaves who will fulfill the will of the Lord. If you want references to all that, just email me. I'm just, not leaving, I'm just leaving them out here. i just to see the overarching point here. And in Philippians, this is exactly what we see fulfilled. Over in chapter 2, Paul identifies Jesus as this very slave. So we could say that this imagery is fulfilled in Jesus. That's over in chapter 2, verse 7. We'll pick it up in verse 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but, here it is, emptied himself by taking the form, here's our word, of a doulos, of a slave or of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So in verse 7, Paul says that Jesus took on the form of a slave. There's clear echoes here to this theme in the Old Testament. And this, this taking on the form of a slave involved him humbling himself to the point of death. So Jesus then is the fulfillment of the prophet's promise. God raised up a faithful slave for himself, who was also an Israelite king, and he died for the redemption of the people. So this one became a slave to free us from our enslavement to sin. And he now enslaves us to himself. Paul had tasted this paradoxical freedom and he never turned back. He had become a slave of Christ Jesus. Liberated by Jesus' love means a life of willing enslavement to Him. A life of new obedience to His will and not our own. Just like Isaiah predicted, Jesus has now created and is creating faithful slaves like Paul, who will fulfill his will in obedience. But I want you to notice something. This slave imagery is not just for Paul. It includes others like Timothy. This imagery also includes his co-worker, Timothy. Timothy his disciple Paul and Timothy notice the plural servants Now if you've studied Paul's introductions which I'm sure you have not <laughs> but if you have like one or two of you in here then you will notice maybe you're going to go home and do this you know after after okay you will notice something that Paul does not usually go on to describe others that he mentions in the opening of his letters. It's usually because he's describing himself as an apostle. So he might mention some people that are with him, but then he goes on and he kind of just focuses in on his own identity, describing himself. So it's, it's rare for Paul to describe others. Even if Paul lists people beside his own name, he usually doesn't go on to describe them too. But in this case, he does. He does. He includes Timothy in the description. He's a slave too. So in other words, being a slave of Christ isn't something special for the apostle only, like apostleship, right? This is the first hint that we have that this title is transferable to others. It's transferable to people like Timothy. We're going to see another hint that it's transferable to the Philippian leadership team. And it's transferable to the church today. But we'll get there in a minute. Right now, we need to establish what a, the, this identity of a slave looks like in real time. So, okay, if you, if you think of yourself as a slave, like what, is this, what does this look like? Well, it involves a humble attitude, obviously. It involves a humble attitude. And we see this clearly in Christ. He is our premier example, really, of all this stuff. But it involves just humility. Paul says that again in chapter two that, that Jesus humbled himself by becoming a human being. Now when we get there, we'll see. This is an incredible text. It's full of mystery. But we don't want to miss that this was a divine act of tremendous humility. And if it's true that if it's true that this is humbling for the Son of God, how much more true should it be of us who were once enslaved to sin? It took his death to redeem us, so we should be the most humble of all people. When we remember our identity as a slave, we're reminded that we are nothing in ourselves and that we should be humble. But we're often elevated in pride, aren't we? And apparently so were these women, Yodia and Sintiki. They were offended at each other, and the sides had been taken in the church. They weren't agreeing in the Lord, but why? Why was this happening? Well, we could say because they'd forgotten they were slaves. They weren't agreeing in the Lord because each of them wanted their own way. They each thought of themselves as more important than the other. And they were looking to their own interests. They had forgotten that they were only slaves of Christ. So that means then that when we're easily offended by other people when we're harboring hurts when we're disagreeable when we're protective of our own rights this shows that we are forgetting that we are just humble slaves of Christ and nothing else. It shows we, we think we're more than slaves. That we're important. That people should pay up if they offend us. We should We should get our way, and we ought to get our way. But a true slave doesn't care about that. He has no rights. A faithful slave is only concerned with his master's interests. And in our case, our master is Christ. What does our master want? He wants us to stay on his mission. (laughs) He wants us to lay our lives down for the good of others. And so we could say it like this, a slave seeks the interests of Christ and the welfare of others. To be a slave means that we seek the interests of Christ, our master, and the welfare of his people. Now, I've listed a text there because for Paul, Timothy embodies this identity. Identity. He says in chapter 2, verse 19, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him. Listen to this. Who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare? For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with his father, here's our word, he has served, it's a verb, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So Paul includes Timothy as a slave in the description in verse one, because he modeled this slave-like identity so well. Paul wanted this church to follow his example too, Timothy's especially those who are arguing and grumbling. Because Timothy didn't care about himself. He knew he was not important, but that Christ was of supreme importance. And that spilled out in genuine love and concern for the church. His humble, slave-like attitude manifests itself in a willingness to love and serve others just like he had been loved and served by the greatest slave of all. You can test how well you know that you are resting in the slave by how much you've been that out. Right? So we experience Christ serving us. In this magnificent, humbling death. And we taste and see. We experience this servitude. And then he tells us, I want you to go and bend that out. I want you to go and pay that forward. Timothy had tasted deeply, he knew he was served by Christ. And so he, he wanted to, to bend this out forward. And that's why this slave like identity is so crucial for the church. Because without that, without that way of thinking, we won't stay on mission. We're going to get wrapped up in our own interests, like Paul says here, like so many of these other gospel ministers we're getting wrapped up in. We'll get offended, and we'll stop discipling in the church. Because we might get hurt again. If we do get hurt, we won't reconcile. Somebody rejects us in the world. We we might get scared, or they start accusing us of things on campus. We back off. But when we have, we don't we don't have to preserve ourselves. Self-preservation is not in the mind of a slave. When we understand that we have been fully possessed by Jesus, that He has freed us from sin and self to serve Him. And that as our master, he will take perfect care of us? Man, if you get a church thinking that way, it's going to be a powerful mission. Now, finally, I want you to notice one final thing that leads me to believe he wants this slave-like identity to characterize the church, especially the leadership in Philippi. Did you notice down in the last part of this verse how next to the saints, he also identifies the overseers and the deacons. Did you catch that, kind of when we read through it? This is the only time in Paul's writings where he does this in the opening. Very rare. So why does he single them out? Well, it's it's likely because the leaders themselves were tempted to take sides in this conflict that was happening in the church. Yodi and Syntyche may have even been female deacons, deaconesses, in this church. They were definitely prominent women. And so the leadership was tempted to take sides in the conflict, most likely. And these leaders are the very leaders who need to help these women agree and to reconcile. So these leaders are specifically and purposefully identified in this letter right after Paul has reminded them That the mighty apostle is nothing but a slave. A slave of Christ. So these leaders then need to remember that this is their identity too. Paul may have even appointed these very leaders. So we could say that this identity as a slave is intended as an example for the Philippian leaders. And it's important that that all believers take this attitude. We'll see that in a second. But it is especially important for the leaders in a church. If something other than the interests of Christ are motivating a leadership team, it will not end well for a church. So how how might you know if a leadership team is wrongly motivated? Well, the shepherds will not look like Timothy. Timothy. They won't be laying their lives down for the sheep. They won't be making very many sacrifices. They'll definitely be self protective. They'll be argumentative. They'll be manipulative, kind of pulling the strings, trying to get their way. Uh, They'll stand aloof from the congregation. They won't get involved in the messiness of congregational life. So, leaders have to know that they're slaves. And that's all they are. We are chatting with Pastor Brian and he was talking to a group of men the other day and he said if he could implant one thing in the heart of a young man aspiring to ministry it would be that he think of himself as a slave to Christ. That this young man would not concern himself with his vision for the church or his own personal desires or dreams but only be consumed with Christ's interests. That's the heart of a slave, and that is absolutely crucial for leaders. And Alongside the leaders, it functions as a reminder for every single one of us, not, just, not only for leaders, but for all of us, every single believer here today. This has to become a part of how we think of ourselves. Again, we'll see this is not the only metaphor for our identity, but it's a very important one. And when it does take root... When this identity as a slave seeps down into our bones, some, some wonderful things begin to happen. Contentment. And joy. Think, huh? Like, knowing I'm a slave? Like, what? How does that, how does that work? Because this slavery is slavery to a perfect master. And our master will provide everything we need. Which means that we will experience that rare jewel of contentment, that secret that Paul talks about in Philippians 4. A slave that has a perfect master only has to worry about one thing. Obedience. What does my master want? And I need to do it. We can trust our master for the rest. There is a sweet contentment, a sweet joy, a sweet restedness that takes root in our hearts when we resign to this fact that we are at his complete disposal. And we're in good hands. We don't have to worry because this master is also our greatest friend And if we ever doubt it, look at Philippians 2. He died to enslave us to himself. He died to set us free. And so we know that his intentions for us are so, so good. So we'll definitely find contentment as a slave. And we'll also find A capacity for incredible fruitfulness in life and in the mission of Christ. So why is that? How does that work? Because our Master knows what is best. And when we heed His Word, we kind of put the blinders on, and we focus on what He has commanded of us, And we're not worried about preeminence. We've got our head down as a simple slave. We're not worried about whether our obedience takes us or even costs us in this life. We're not worried about that. When that's happening, He is delighted to produce baskets full of fruit over time. Because we're not grasping at the glory. Paul was thrown in prison for his obedience. But guess what? The Praetorian Guard was converted, and other Christians were emboldened to share the gospel in Rome. See that? Chapter 1? I guarantee you that if Paul were drawing up the plans for his own life, it would not have included imprisonment. He wanted to be free. He wanted the freedom to move around so he could plant more churches, share the gospel. Come to Philippi. Help them. But he's in prison. But you know what? Paul wasn't worried about his goals for his life. It didn't mean he didn't make plans. He certainly made plans. Paul had a vision. He had a strategy. But when his master's providence overruled them, he remembered he's only slave, that <laughs> he doesn't have the full picture. So he stayed focused on simply being obedient as a slave, in prison. What happened? The fruit was incredible. Slavery then frees us. It frees us to work hard for Christ. It frees us to do what we can in a day. It frees us to enjoy what He's provided for us, and it frees us to just go to sleep. A lifetime of faithful labor as a slave then will result in tremendous advancement of Christ's mission. Tremendous fruit. Now, as significant as this is, This imagery, this slave imagery, it's not the only one that we find in our verse here. There's another one, and an equally joyous one, and it's that we are saints in Christ. We're slaves of Christ and saints in Christ. Do you see that in the second part of this verse? In his address, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. So in the second part of this verse, Paul identifies the recipients. It's part of a, a, a classic opening in one of these Greco-Roman letters. And here, of all the things he could identify the church as, he identifies them as saints in Christ Jesus in Philippi. Now, just get our minds around this identity a little bit and why we, we have to see ourselves this way, let's just let's kind of tease it out, answer some questions. First, what's a saint? What exactly is this? Well, saint just means being set apart by God for his use. A saint means someone who was set apart by God for his use. It's not what the Catholics say some special extra godly Christian who's usually dead. That's a sad perversion of a very glorious truth in the Bible. According to Scripture, a saint is literally a holy one. Someone who has been set apart by God with the intention of being used by God. And like the idea of slave, this idea of God's people as holy finds its roots in the Old Testament too. As God's people, Israel was chosen and set apart as God's holy nation. Exodus nineteen six, But she continually defiled herself through her idolatry. And she defiled herself to the point that the land, it says, vomited her out. Pretty graphic image. Vomited her out in exile. But again, in exile, the Lord predicted a day when he would make his people holy. He would make her holy through the cleansing of her idolatrous heart once and for all. And this would come to include the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And so now, all who turn to Jesus in faith, they are cleansed and set apart as holy. They belong to the Lord. They're ready for His use. They've been made holy once and for all. This is not a special status for extra-godly people. This is the status of all of God's people. But how? How are we saints? Well, we see a little, little hint in this description. We become saints when we are united to Christ. We're not saints on our own. We don't make ourselves saints. We're saints because of our association with another, with Christ himself. He says that we are saints in Christ Jesus. What he means here is that through our faith in Christ, we've been united to Christ. We've been placed in him, if you will. We've been placed into the Holy One himself, and so we too are holy in status. So if you're thinking to yourself, man, I definitely don't feel very holy, uh, you're probably right. Um, in yourself, you're not holy. But if you've trusted Jesus, you're not in yourself anymore. Paul says here, you are in Christ. You've been placed in Him, and that because of Him, because of what He has done, you are now holy. And that is the glory of the gospel. Do you realize that Christ earned your life for you? The holy life that you should have lived but you haven't even come close to living. Life was lived perfectly by the Lord Jesus. He never sinned. He never violated God's holy standard of perfection. And not only did He never violate it, but He radiated that holiness out to others. Some of my favorite stories in the Gospels are when He touches lepers, And instead of becoming unclean himself, what happens? He transforms the unclean. He makes them clean. And now Paul implies that when God looks at you, he sees the obedience of his son. He sees his son's perfection. You can think of it like a like a warm coat that you put on in the winter. You're not holy in yourself, you're you're holy, you're wrapped up, you're a saint in Christ. Now this is crucial for both the Philippians and for us to let this settle in. Why is that? Because it subtly confronts that one of the threats that they were facing in the church, which is legalism. Legalism says that, that something we do makes us holy before God if I just read my Bible or if I just pray enough or if I just evangelize, then I'll be holy. Then I'll be accepted. Paul says the opposite. We're holy in Christ, not in ourselves. We're holy because of what he's done, not what we've done. If we think we're somehow earning holiness, we're accruing it somehow, then we are going to be proud when we think we're accruing it. That's going to leak out in being real critical about other people. Judgmental. But if on the flip side, we realize we can't actually accrue any holiness because we're just continually stumbling around, we think it's on us to earn it, then we're going to be depressed and discouraged because we know that we can never, ever, ever measure up to this standard. And that's what legalism produces. Arrogance, criticism, or just despondency and Depression. But Paul here says that we are holy because of Christ. Because, in particular, we are placed in Him. And this actually frees us to zealously pursue holiness in the here and now. But so often, this is not how we're identifying. We're not identifying as saints, we're identifying as sinners especially when we're, when we're sinning, right? But we should reverse this identification. We should identify as saints who sin, not as sinners who are sometimes saintly. See the difference? We should take on as an identity, we are saints who sin, not the other way around. Sinners who sometimes are saintly. When we identify as sinners and not as saints in Christ, we are tempted toward living a defeated life. We're tempted not to exert much effort to grow because we think we can't really change all that much anyway. But when we realize that our default status in Christ is a saint, that changes the game completely. Even if I sin as a saint, I don't want to stay there because I'm a saint. I want to repent. I want to get back on the path. I want to continue to live out my status as a holy one in Christ. There's excitement and hopefulness when we identify as a saint, like God tells me to. And that's exactly what God intends, because he's left us here to radiate his holiness right in the midst of a crooked world. So notice that we're not taken out of the world as saints, but we're left in it. We're left here for a purpose. We're set apart as saints in the world. And the way Paul juxtaposes these phrases is really interesting in the the Greek text. We're saints in Christ in Philippi. He says that these believers are saints in a particular locale. Saints in this city of Philippi. And as saints, as holy ones, they are set apart right in the midst of this Roman colony that is wrapped up in Roman values. That's tempted to worship Caesar as Lord. That despises humility. The very idea of being a saint is that we are set apart for something. We're set apart for a task. Christ has incorporated us into His holiness so that we come to share in it as well. So that we come to resemble Him. Paul's going to go on to tell this church that he wants them to keep on obeying and to do everything without grumbling. Chapter 2. Why? He says, So that they will be above reproach in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Chapter 2, verse 15. In other words, the task is to keep growing in obedience so that Christ's character shines bright in the midst of a dark, Romanized Philippi. He wants them to be counter-cultural. Remembering that we're saints then frees us from this temptation toward another threat, which is worldliness. Becoming like the world. Paul didn't want this church getting wrapped up in worldly desires. He didn't want them getting caught up in their earthly citizenship in Rome. All the benefits that that entailed and fear of losing it. He wants them to to get wrapped up to remember their citizenship is in heaven, he says, and to learn to progressively live like that on earth. So remembering that we're saints, that we've been set apart for Christ, or set apart in Christ for a task, that's going to help us stay focused. It's going to help us to stay on mission right here in Boundless. Because we're tempted to think that how we live isn't that big of a deal. We can gratify our flesh. Not a big deal. No, I'm not supposed to, but I mean, hey, I mean, Christ, nobody seems hurt. But do you realize that we are dimming the lights, so to speak? Your individual lack of conformity to Christ dims the brightness of boundless. The more we don't resemble Christ, the weaker our evangelism will be. The more we give in to the world's enticements, the less spiritual clarity we will have, as individuals and as a church. And less clarity means we're going to have less zeal. It means we're going to be less fruitful. We won't be as useful to others in discipleship. But if we remember that Christ has made us holy in Himself, and if we remember that He has set us apart to pursue that holiness, and if we can see the spiritual fruitfulness that He's promised, if we do, then we're going to be incentivized to continue the mission. Now, Paul ends this little section here, his opening of the letter, with a beautiful Christian greeting. just going to kind of read it, make a few comments, and then we'll close. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he reminds us that because we're slaves of Christ, because we're saints in Christ, Paul can confidently say that grace and peace are ours. That lavish and abundant grace Comes to us from God Himself. We've been given an identity we do not deserve. And it is all of grace. And as a result of this grace, He says, grace to you, it's fronted, and then, and peace. We also have peace. We have peace from God that Paul will go on to describe in chapter 4. This peace means we're no longer at war with God. We've entered into this state of peace, into shalom, of being restored to Him, never to be separated again. And as we come to actualize this, as actualize our identity, and learn to rejoice in the Lord, He's going to say later, we're going to experience the peace of God which passes understanding. But regardless of our experience, it is ours. Grace to you and peace from God. So, Paul's been very purposeful in the opening of this letter, hasn't he? He really wants these concepts of our identity to sink in. Because he knows if they do, we will be liberated to live on mission. We'll see greater fruitfulness as we share the gospel. We'll see each other becoming more and more conformed to Christ. Paul knows that identity is crucial. And even in the opening of the letter... How he describes himself, how he talks about the Philippians, he is shepherding us. But I want to leave you with, with this. All of this hinges on Christ. It hinges on Jesus. Did you notice how central he is in these opening verses? We're slaves of Christ. Meaning, we belong to him through his liberating work. We're holy in Christ. Meaning we have no hope for holiness outside of Him. If He didn't do something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves, we wouldn't be holy. We're holy in Him. And even grace and peace coming from God our Father and, Paul says, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what a privilege it is to be a slave in a saint in the kingdom of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we would pray that your Spirit would help us here. We know He desires to. We know you desire to implant this on our hearts. And We pray that your Spirit would be delighted to do that work in us as we Meditate on um, our identity, what you have declared to be true about us. We pray that by your Spirit's power that it would sink down deep, that it would become the way we we think about ourselves um, in the moments of our day, and that as slaves and saints, we would uh, be zealous to serve you, knowing that you have served us And that we belong to you. And we are thankful for that. And we look to you for fruit. And we pray for it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.